In James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in the good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So in verse 1, he starts off with, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. I like the way the New Living Translation says it. It says, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others. Now the word partiality here means favoritism. So I'm not going to lie to you, and you don't have to lie to me, because we all do have favorite people. I mean, mine are all right here in the front row today. I'm sorry. I love you all. I do... Yeah, keep smiling, Aaron. <laughs> You're on the wrong side. Uh, but... Right? But I certainly love all of you and would do anything I could for any of you. I do love them a little more. Can't help it. Right? So is that what he's talking about? Right? That you shouldn't love your wife more than you love Aaron? Everybody should love my wife more than they love Aaron. I mean, not to be mean, but Aaron, you're a great guy. But she's, she's awesome. So, But the word here really applies. Um, that we don't hold our faith in Jesus, the Lord of glory, with favoritism. See, God doesn't play favorites. I saw a shirt, and I loved it. It said, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. <laughs> right? And I know it's not necessarily true. I want to believe I'm his favorite, just like all of our children want to believe they're our favorites. Um, and I, when they, they tell me, I'm your favorite, aren't I? I'll say, well, I have a favorite. I'm just not going to tell you who it is. And in all honesty, some days it's different. <laughs> Love you guys. But God doesn't have favorites. He offers salvation in Jesus Christ to anyone and everyone who will come to him. It is not our place to say one person 
is more worthy of salvation than another. Because none of us are worthy of it. It is a gift of God. James goes on to describe this for us. So he really starts with describing what it means to not show partiality. If there should come into your assembly, verse 2, a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there also comes in a poor man in filthy clothes. You pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you go, you sit here in the good place. You say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit at my feet. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you were called? So this illustration of giving a rich person a seat of honor and a poor person a place of dishonor in the church is his example of showing favoritism. And that's not what God wants us to do. It's really interesting. Um, and I know I've said this before, but I have no idea what anybody in the church gives. And there's a reason for that. Because uh, let's say one of you gives X amount and somebody else gives you know, Y amount. And that was on purpose, right? Somebody gives a lot more than somebody else. You know what the temptation would be? It's the temptation. Would be, oh, well, you know, so-and-so. I'm going to take them out to coffee. I'm going to call them. I'm going to keep them happy. And you, well, you know, I'm glad you're here, but you really don't give that much, so just sit down and be quiet. Right? I'm going to tell you a story. First church I ever pastored was a very small church, and an utter failure on most accounts. I've told most of you that story. Um, at that church, we ended up getting this family that started to come. And uh, it was very exciting for us. It was a, a, a da the dad and mom were older, their son and his wife, and I think they had a kid or two. My wife knows who I'm talking about. But it was really exciting. You know, we would have Sundays with three or four people, and all of a sudden we have like six more, right? There's kids in the children's ministry that aren't mine. <laughs> and... Uh, you, you know, we were really excited. And uh, I felt like the Lord put on my heart to do an outreach. And so I brought it up to the church, you know, like at that time we maybe had 12 people, 10, 12 people. I brought it up to the church that I wanted to do this outreach. And at the time, because I was the pastor and there was, you know, 10 of us, I actually handled the church's finances. I will never do it again, but I handled the church's finances. So I knew this guy. He was given a pretty good amount of money. Well, he came to me after I made this, this announcement that I wanted to do this outreach. And he said, if you do that, I will never give money to this church again. So it start, I, I started thinking. I really did. I'm like, well, all right, Lord, did, did I actually hear from you? Did, did you really tell me to do this? Because maybe if he feels that strongly about it, I'm wrong. And the Lord was like, dude, I told you what to do, didn't I? Yes, sir. So I did it. They left. Never gave any more money to the church. At least he was honest about it. And so that's why I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Because then that temptation is real. You see, God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. I love that statement here. To be rich in faith is to be abounding in faith or abounding in trust 
in Christ for salvation. And the Bible tells us in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, do not lay up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Have you ever noticed that? If you spend a lot of money on something, you, you tend to care about it a little bit more. Am I the only one? I, you, you guys have seen, I, I have a, a beautiful collection of guitars. I hopefully use them for the Lord's glory, but I do. I have, I have several very nice guitars, and I'm very grateful for them, that the Lord allows me to have them. And if the Lord wanted them back, I would gladly sell them. Um, but he hasn't told me to do that yet, so I still have them. Uh, I had to do that once. It was very difficult at that time, but I've grown a little bit, I think. I hope. But here's the deal, right? My very first guitar was like 100 bucks. You know, and I kind of throw that in the trunk of the car and kind of just do whatever with it. I, I didn't care if, it, if I left it out. Big deal. The guitar that's sitting up there is, oh, no. If I could, it would ride on my lap. But then the airbag might damage it, and we don't want that, right? But it's always in its case. It's always, I wipe it down every time I play. I take really good care of it because, well, I spent money on it. But that's the same way it is for us. So if we're investing in this world, we're investing in material things where, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. And I'm not saying you can't have nice stuff. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying if that's where your, the most of your treasure is, then that's where your heart's going to be, and you're going to be distracted. I'm also not telling you to give all your money to the church. It's not that kind of sermon. But our investment should be eternal. We should be investing in the things of God. We should be focusing on the things of God. Because if that's where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be also. And then he says, aren't the rich oppressive and blasphemous? And I've said this before. I don't believe it's a sin to be wealthy. Sometimes wealthy people do really great things with their money. Sometimes they don't. You know, it just depends on the wealthy person. I think the problem is those who trust in their riches. That's where the problem is. Because they put their trust in their money instead of trusting in God. And those who trust in money instead of trusting in God then dismiss the things of God. And that is the blasphemy, I think, that James is talking about. And in so doing, the wealthy often oppress those who have less than them. So I don't think having money is evil. I think when money has you, that's the problem. Right? The Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Psalm 62.10 says, if riches increase, don't set your heart on them. It's not a sin to have money. It's a sin to trust that money instead of trusting God. So he makes this great illustration, and then he moves forward in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. 
For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So if we really want to follow Christ, if we really want to be obedient to what God has commanded us, we can't show partiality, but we love our neighbors as ourselves because showing favoritism, according to this passage, is a sin. Now, loving your neighbor as yourself, we're going we're gonna to take a, a, a short journey here, but I think it'll be worth it in the end. To love your neighbor as yourself is first commanded back in Leviticus 19, 18. It is hit again in the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus reiterates this in Matthew 22, 39 as the second greatest commandment. Only behind loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Remember, the lawyer came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then in Ephesians 5, 28 through 29, it says, Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Now, I know this is speaking to husbands and wives, which is good. There's husbands and wives here. But I think it applies to everyone because what it does is it describes how we love ourselves. And it uses two words, nourish and cherish. Right? When you're hungry, what do you do? You eat. When you, when you get hurt, what do you do? You get it taken care of. When you're sick, what do you do? You sit on the couch and whine for your wife to take care of you. Isn't that how that works? It's true. I'm not lying. It's just the way it is. Um, I call my mom still. She's probably watching. She knows this. If I get sick, I call my mom. She's in California. She can't do anything. Mommy, what is it? I'm sick. Oh, did Leah make you soup? Uh-huh. I still, I'm, I don't care, I'm 45, I'm a big old mama's boy, I still call my mom when I don't feel well. It's just the way it is. But we the, the husband is to nourish and cherish his wife the way he nourishes and cherishes his own body. So that description of what we do for ourselves is how we are to love others. The word nourish means to provide strength or to feed so that something grows. So when I think about you all, if I'm loving you the way I love myself, then I want to make sure you're fed spiritually, emotionally, and, and even physically if necessary. Then to cherish, I love the word cherish. It means to warm, brood, or foster. Think of a mother hen sitting on her egg. That's what the word means, to cherish. Right? Why is she sitting on them? To keep them warm? To keep them protected? So if any of you are cold or need protection, let me know. I'll sit on you. No, I won't. I won't do that. We do this for ourselves, right? If you're cold, you put on a coat. If you're hungry, you eat. If you, if you need something, you, you seek it out, whatever it is that you need. 
And that's what we should do for one another. That's what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. Because I'm, I'm cold. I need a coat. You see somebody else who doesn't have a coat, get him a coat. You're hungry. You go get yourself a cheeseburger or, or whatever it is. You see somebody else who's hungry, make sure they have food. We're going to deal with that again next week. But he goes on to say that you can't claim to keep the whole law but skip a part. See, and many of us say, but I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. And this is true. We're going to talk more about this again next week. However, being under grace, A, does not give us freedom to sin, but freedom from sin, according to Romans 6.1. And B, doesn't give us freedom to disobey the word of God. That's, that's not how it works. Yes, I am free from the righteous requirements of the law. I don't have to try to work my way into God's favor anymore. That has been accomplished for me on the cross through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And that's exactly what he did. When he died on the cross, he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for us. So that we now can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and stand before God, forgiven and cleansed. Does that mean we can murder people? No! Romans 6.1 says, Should I sin that grace may abound? Right? I can sin all my want because then I just get more grace from God. No. That's not how that works. We also, we always, sorry, always have to remember that there are consequences for sin. Right? And what do people do? He uses adultery and murder. It's the same example Jesus uses in Matthew 5, which we'll get to in a moment. Well, yeah, I know I committed adultery, but at least I've never murdered anybody. Yeah, I know I told a little white lie, but at least I didn't rob a bank. We justify things, don't we? Oh, sure. I yelled at my kids, but I didn't hit them. Thanks, Adam. Adam's like, yeah. No. You do one thing that dishonors God. You are guilty of the whole law. And now Jesus takes that further in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, we're told that hatred is equal to murder. Have you ever hated anyone? Then according to Christ, you're a murderer. So am I. All right, I'm trying not to point. I am too. He says, if you look at a woman lustfully, that's equal to adultery. We're going to move on. When we put that in perspective, uh, you, you already know. When we put that in perspective, we can't claim to follow the law when there's hatred in our hearts or lust in our hearts or any other part of what we call the moral law, those things that God wants us to do because it's good for us and it's good for each other. Right? Maybe I've never stolen from any of you, but there was a day, oh gosh, it was over the summer, when, I don't know if anybody else saw this, when all the Ferraris were parked downtown. Anybody remember that? There was like 12 Ferraris parked downtown. And I drove by, I was like, ooh. <laughs> right? Well, that's covetousness. Now, don't get me wrong. I really don't want a Ferrari. 66 Mustang convertible, but not really a Ferrari. Fully restored. Yeah, that's my dream car. 
Now, what's really interesting, I, my very first car was a 1980 Toyota Celica. If I had kept it, it would be a classic now. <laughs> but that's, it's the intent. It's the intent, right? We always want to look at the outside. Yeah, maybe I did this, but I'm not as bad as that guy. Don't stop comparing yourselves. Don't stop. No, stop comparing yourselves to other people. I can't look at so-and-so and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that. Well, at least I'm not Putin. At least I'm not invading another country. Doesn't matter. You break any point of the law, you're guilty of all of it. And praise God, we can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. Because without that, we're all gone. We're all lost. But at the same time, as followers of Christ... We cannot claim to be followers of Christ who are being obedient to God when we're showing favoritism or we're doing anything else that dishonors his name. That's what we're going to get into in verse 12. Verse 12. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Simple and practical advice. So speak and so do. In other words, do what you say you will do. Don't be a hypocrite. If you say you're a Christian, then you should be following Christ. That means not showing favoritism, not living a life of sin, not ignoring the word of God, and so much more. Because when we are truly following Christ, we will live what we say we believe by the power of the Holy Spirit. Knowing we will be judged by the law of liberty. We talked about the law of liberty in chapter 1. The complete law of freedom, the word of God, which we are to continue in. And it's very, very simple. You ever meet somebody who says, I'll do this, that, or the other thing for you, and then they don't do it. Any, anyone? Am I the only one who's met somebody like that? Okay, okay, I've met a few people like that. I've even been that person a long time ago. Thankfully, not so much anymore, but, right, you, you get somebody, you just, you're relying on them. Yeah, I'm going to do that. And then they don't do it, and, and you have, right? It makes you angry. When we say we're a Christian, I think part of the reason our world is in the state it's in, there's a lot of people that say they're a Christian, and man, their lives look different, doesn't it? Their, man, their lives don't look like a Christian. I've had those conversations with people. Well, you know, I'd come to church, but I met this person once who said they were a Christian, but they were lying to, their, to our boss, and I just didn't want to go to church with the guy. I knew he was a liar. He said he's a Christian. I know he's a liar. empathy on people like that. You say you're a Christian? Man, your life should look like it. It should. The Bible tells us, uh, when we talk about the Ten Commandments, to not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. It's one of the ten. And everybody seems to think that, well, don't use the name of God as a swear word. Which, it could definitely mean that, because that's blasphemy. 
to use the name of God as a swear word. But you know what it means to not take the name of the Lord our God in vain? It means that you don't call yourself after his name if you're not going to live accordingly. That's what it means. I call myself a Christian. It means little Christ. I tell people that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I tell people I'm a believer. I tell people I'm a pastor. My life had better darn well reflect that. It had just better. Now, that doesn't mean perfection. You all know me. I ain't perfect. Not even close. But if I'm going to tell you I'm a Christian, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to betray you. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to mistreat you. I'm going to love you the way I love myself. That's the way it should be. That's what it means. So speak and so do. Now it talks about being judged here according to the law of liberty. Now keep in mind that those of us who are in Christ will not stand before the great white throne judgment of God. This is a judgment for those who reject Christ. Revelation 20 verse 11 talks about it. We will, however, stand before the judgment seat of Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 5.10, where our works as followers of Jesus will be judged for reward. So the first and most important question is, do you know Jesus Christ? That will determine which judgment seat you, sit, you stand before. Because if you don't know Christ, you will stand before the great white throne judgment of God. That judgment leads to eternal condemnation. That judgment will be based on how severe your sin was. It's true. There is different levels of judgment based on severity of sin. The Bible tells us that. Jesus told us those deserving of many stripes will receive many. Those deserving of few stripes will be receive few. But in the end, it's all the lake of fire. It's all eternal separation from God. It's all eternal condemnation. Outer darkness, the Bible calls it where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. It's bad. And people ask, well, how can a good God send people to hell? He doesn't. People choose it by choosing to reject his offer of salvation. And that offer is given to everyone. So if there's anybody here or anybody listening online and you have not received Christ as Savior, now is the time. Today is the day. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the grave. The Bible says that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And the Bible says that whoever believes in him, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So turn from your sin. Repent. Turn to Christ right now. Nobody's promised tomorrow. And if you don't know Christ, that's the judgment seat you'll stand before. If you do, when it says we'll be judged by the perfect law of liberty, if you do know Christ, there's still a judgment seat for you. It's called the Bema Seat of Christ. That's in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that I mentioned. The Bema Seat of Christ. The word Bema means judgment for reward. It was the, the word used for an Olympic judge. Because, you know, the Olympics started in Greece. And most of the New Testament's written in Greek. 
So the Bema seat, you were judged for your reward. And if you go read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you will see that we'll be judged for our works, not for salvation. We are not saved by our works. We're saved by grace alone, but our works will be judged. And we'll stand before the Bema seat of Christ, and he'll judge our works by fire. If they're wood, hay, and stubble, right? If they're meaningless, they'll burn up. They're gold, silver, and precious jewels, then they'll last, and that turns into a reward in eternity. Just let that sink into your mind for a moment, right? We can't save ourselves. Jesus saves us. The work that we do for him has to be done by the power of his Holy Spirit, and then he rewards us for the work that he does in us through his Holy Spirit. But then he goes on and says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Jesus told us in Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And these two statements are just the opposite sides of the same coin. On one side, if you don't show mercy, you won't get mercy. On the other side, if you do show mercy, you will get mercy. Jesus illustrated this for us in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. You don't have to turn there. But in Matthew 18, 21, 35, Jesus gives a parable, what we call the parable of the unforgiving servant. So this master calls in his servants to settle accounts, right? The people who own money. And he gets this one, and I believe Jesus said, ten, the guy owed the master 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was several thousand pounds. So if you were dealing with gold or even silver, you were talking somewhere in the millions or billions of dollars in today's society. And he couldn't pay him. He didn't have the money. So he fell down before the master and begged, please, please, just give me time. Because in that culture, if you owed somebody money and you couldn't pay it, they could sell you into slavery. They could sell your kids, your wife into slavery. They could sell your house, your possessions, your cow, your donkey, whatever you have. They could sell it to recoup some of their money. A little bit different today. Now if you owe somebody money you don't pay, you get a bad credit report. Maybe they send a creditor to your house or annoying phone calls or whatever they do. Um, but they didn't sell you. Very different in that culture. So he falls down before his master and begs and pleads. And the master forgives him. The unpayable debt. Sound familiar? We have a master who has forgiven us an unpayable debt. Our sin. And so the guy goes out. You think he'd be have a little spring in his step, right? A little feel a little bit better, no longer owes somebody a billion dollars. He finds a fellow servant who owes him the equivalent of about a thousand dollars. Right? He just got forgiven a billion dollar debt. Got a friend who owes him a thousand bucks. He goes to that friend and says, Hey, you owe me a thousand bucks. And the friend falls on his knees and says, Please forgive me. And the guy who had just been forgiven billion starts choking him. Has him thrown into prison. Says, you're not getting out until you pay me every last penny. The other servants see this and they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Bill's off his rocker. I don't know if the guy's name is Bill. They go back to the master and they go, master, didn't you just forgive him a billion dollars? Yeah. He's beating up his friend and throwing him in prison over a thousand bucks. So the master calls him back in. Says, excuse me, didn't I forgive you a great debt? Well, yeah. Shouldn't you have forgiven a 
says in verse 35 so he throws sorry I gotta I'll get there he throws the guy in prison sells his wife and kids and everything else he lost his forgiveness then in verse 35 Jesus kind of puts the nail in it so my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses that hurts we are to forgive with the same forgiveness we've been shown. And I'll tell you what, I know people get hurt. I've been hurt. I've been hurt by people I love. I've been hurt by people I don't care about. They, don't, they can't hurt you as much. I've been hurt by family. I've been hurt by friends. I've been hurt by churches. I've been hurt by a lot of things. We all have. None of it is even close the way we have broken God's heart with our sin. Not close. I'm not saying that to minimize your hurt. I'm not saying that because I think, well, you just, it's, your, your hurt doesn't really matter. You know, I'm not saying that because our hurts do matter. They matter to God. They matter to me. They matter to you. Our hurts do matter. But we don't have the right to withhold forgiveness because God has never withheld it from As we close, we demonstrate our faith in and commitment to Jesus through the way we live. We show our faith by our works, which is what we're going to talk about next week. And I can't wait. The, the passage we're going to look at in the second half of James chapter 2 next week is one of the uh, most often confused passages. People really get messed up there. I hope you can be here. I'm going to do my best to explain it, but that's next week. But the fact that we show our faith by our works does not make salvation a work. It is, always has been, and always will be a free gift of God's grace through Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us. And many other places, the disciples came to Jesus and said, what must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God. Believe in me, whom the Father sent. Done. That's it. Believe in him. It will always be a gift of his grace. There will never be a time when we have to work for our salvation. Never, ever, 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 ever. Not even a little bit. At the same time, when we receive the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, our lives must reflect that reality. According to this passage, our lives reflect that reality in three ways. First, we don't show favoritism towards people. You ever look at somebody and go, man, I hope they never come to my church. You ever done that? I've done it. I'm ashamed of it, but I've done it. You ever looked at somebody and go, man, that person ain't going to heaven and they never will. You ever done it? I've done it. I'm not, I'm not pointing this out because I think y'all are worse, but I've done it too. You ever prayed for our president? felt like this is pointless I pray for our president because I'm commanded to I would love to see him get saved I know I've talked about this recently but how cool would that be 
just think about this. He comes out and he goes, you know what? You know, not even talking about politics. He just came out and said, you know what? I've given my life to Christ as Savior. And the rest of you need to as well. How about any president? Not just our current one. Come out and preach the gospel at a press conference or during the State of the Union. How awesome would that be? We can't look at somebody. What about a Muslim? There's over a billion Muslims in the world. You want to know what? They need Jesus Christ just like we do. There's a lot of times it's so easy to show favoritism. And for us to say, well, that person's not really worthy. Yeah, well, neither am I. Second, we will be obedient to the word of God by the power of his Holy Spirit. This includes, of course, loving our neighbor as ourselves. If our, we're going to live out the Christianity we claim, this is the guide. This is how we do it. Not that we're going to be perfect. Not that we're not going to make mistakes. But we're going to be obedient to the word of God. It's that simple. Yeah, we're going to stumble. The Bible says a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. And we always think about that. I remember when I was a young Christian, I used to go, a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. Well, okay, I fell once. Well, I fell twice. Well, I fell a third time. It's only Tuesday. What am I going to do? Well, you know, it's Thursday. Now I'm up to nine. And, and you know, because but that's not what it means. The number seven in the Bible always means completeness. That means you can completely fall, utterly broken, separated from God by your own stupidity. And you can get back up when you hit. And he'll welcome you home and forgive you and love you and he'll clean you up. Parable of the prodigal son illustrates it perfectly. But we're going to listen to him. We're going to follow him. And we're going to love other people. That's what we're going to do. Finally, we're not going to be hypocrites. We're not going to say that we're going to live like number two and then live some other way. We're going to live a life that reflects our assertion that we are followers of Christ. And this includes showing mercy as we've been shown mercy or forgiving others the way we've been forgiven. So I'm going to close with a couple questions because I always do this. Almost always. Almost always. First and foremost, and I got into this earlier, but I'm going to ask it again. Do you know Jesus and claim to be his follower? I think I know pretty much everybody in here, and I'm so grateful you're here, and I'm so grateful you know Jesus. But maybe you don't, or maybe there's someone online who doesn't. If there's someone online, put a message in the comments, jump on our website and send us an email. Let us help you come to know and have faith in Jesus Christ. It's so simple and so powerful. Number two, are there areas of favoritism in your life and walk that you need to deal with, or that I need to deal with? See, I always ask these questions because I want you to be real honest with yourself before God. Not necessarily, I don't care if you tell me. If you want to talk to me and you need help with it, I'll, I'll do my best. But you got to reflect on this and be honest between yourself and God. Because God already knows. And if there's favoritism in your life, right, if there's people, however that looks for you, deal with it. Repent of it. Ask God to give you a supernatural love for other people. Are you being obedient to God's word? Or is there an area where you're not being obedient to God's word? Is there something maybe the Holy Spirit's stirring in your heart? Yeah, we've talked about this, and you're not listening. It's time to start listening. 
Where do you need to start? Where is the Spirit leading you to start on that road to obedience? And, and don't get me wrong, if you've been with us as we've been studying the first five books of the Bible, um, or if you've just ever read them, or you've read the Gospels, there's a lot that we're being asked to do. I understand that. I understand that we're not always going to get it just right. But by His grace, and the power of His Holy Spirit, we can walk in obedience. Not on our own. We're not going to muster up the power. But by His grace and His power, we can walk according to this book. Are we loving our neighbors as ourselves? This is a hard one for me. I have two people camping across the street from my house. And I get home, and I'm like, I'm camping from my house. I get, I get grumbly about it. Right? And you want it, they got their power run over to the, the VFW building. <laughs> like, come on, guys, we're trying to live here. People camping in my front yard. You know, but I, I shouldn't hate them. What I should really do is go over and invite them to church, take them a hot meal. I should do something. But it's a good question, isn't it? Finally, and this is the big one. This kind of encompasses everything else. Does our life reflect our claim to be a follower of Christ? Now, if it doesn't, there's an area you're falling short, repent, seek the Lord, talk with him, and then ask for the power of his spirit to move forward. Let's pray. Lord, we love you so, so very much. And we pray, God, that you would give us the grace and the strength by your Holy Spirit to not live a life that dishonors you, but instead to live a life that brings you glory and honor, that shows love to our neighbors, that gives us the opportunity to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ Lord, I once again pray for our world. We need you, God. We need you so desperately. We need you to work in our lives, to work in our church, to work in our valley. We need you, Lord, to intervene in the places where so much is going wrong. God, we need you to pour out your spirit as the prophet Joel promised, as began in the early church says, pour out your spirit on all flesh. That your young men will see visions. And that your old men will dream dreams. And that both men and women and servants and, and the wealthy and the poor, and it doesn't matter, God, that your spirit would be poured out upon us to empower us, to embolden us, to strengthen us, to give us comfort and peace see your kingdom expanded and your name glorified. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name.